Everybody's talking about it. And the it is COVID-19, which is short for what? Coronavirus. Everybody's talking about it. If you haven't been talking about it, you got to get in on the discussion. There's just a lot going on with coronavirus. This was the New York Times on Friday when I was putting my message together, and I believe they have updates all the time. In fact, there are updates coming all the time. I was talking with uh, Jay, and he said uh, 30 cases in California now. All right, so it's not just out there. The struggle is having it come here. Coronavirus live updates, fears of global spread as cases accelerate in Iran and South Korea. Here's what you need to know. Fears of global spread increase as new cases emerge. New clusters of the virus are found in China's prisons. Coronavirus cases in the United States reach 34 and more are expected. And here was this report, 30 in California. I'm not sure if it's a part of the 34. Italy introduces quarantine measures amid big uptick in cases. And then auto sales plummet 92% in China amid worker shortage. And so it's a health issue and then it's also a global economy issue. And so there this is this massive worldwide effort to stop the spread of the coronavirus. I watched the news last night, and I think they said 77,000 cases worldwide and 2,300 deaths. A few pictures of, of what's taking place. Empty streets in Wuhan on Thursday, nearly 300 people are infected with the coronavirus in prisons in Hubei province, whose capital is Wuhan. All right, so this is where they feel it started, and that is a city, I believe, of some 11, 12, 13 million people. That's the, those are the streets. Uh, as it affects America, Americans on a bus departing the Diamond Princess cruise ship on February 17th. Two charter flights carried them to military bases in the United States, and we see these masks, and we're very used to, at least most of us are paying attention to the news, seeing these masks attempting to prevent the spread of this virus. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. And we're going to be talking about the gospel going to Samaria. And we're in a passage that is all about Wanting to spread something. I just talked about the coronavirus and what's the, the, the desire with the coronavirus. It's something we want to stop from spreading. It's deadly, but we're going to talk about something this morning we want spread. What is that something? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that in our passage. The gospel going forward. Our passage today is going to be so relevant I like to talk about relevancy because we think, well, this is old Acts 2,000 years ago. Is it relevant? We're going to see from our passage this morning that the gospel is for the whole world. Even those we would count our enemies. The gospel is for the whole world. And we're going to see this morning from our verses that God loves his church and is concerned with its unity and its purity. We're going to see that this morning. God loves his church. And so our passage is very relevant. 
So at this point, you should have your notes out. And actually, on top of your notes, I asked you to put Ron Alton's name and Katie's name. So you already should have something written on your notes. So quickly do that. So you'll pray for them during the week. And your Bible is open to Acts chapter 8. We're going to study God's Word. And my expectation is, is uh, we're going to open God's Word. So you see, it's, hey, Pastor Joe isn't making this up. <laughs> I can be good at making stuff up. As, as we all can, but it's like, all right, what, what does God's word say? So let's talk about context. Where are we at? I want us to understand how, how this book is developing. In Acts chapter 6, the early church faces a problem. They faced a lot of problems. There's a lot of progress. They faced a lot of problems. But we're told of a complaint on the part of the Hellenistic Jews that their widows were being overlooked. Their widows were being neglected. So there's a problem. And obviously when we think in terms of family members or widows or the, uh, the elderly, folks like that, it really touches us. And so there's this problem. The church in Jerusalem is exploding. I don't think I in the past appreciated before my study in this, just how the church is exploding in Jerusalem, a city of maybe a 100,000 people, and I'm going to conjecture 25, 30% of the city has responded to the gospel. And so the church is exploding. And the apostles find themselves overworked and overwhelmed, And thus the widows are being neglected. I believe that the apostles had a responsibility, at least initially, to look out for the widows. But the church has exploded, and and so they're overworked, and they're overwhelmed, and the widows are overlooked. And so they propose a solution, select seven men, highly qualified, and we'll give them this responsibility so we can teach the word and pray. So select seven men, and the the church approves of that, and they select seven men. And one of those we studied last week, he is singled out. What was his name? This is a quiz. Yes, it's Stephen. And Stephen is powerful in word and deed. I think we have to have some sense of appreciating just the kind of evangelist, I guess we would say, he was. He proclaimed the gospel to the Hellenistic Jews. Perform signs and wonders. So many are responding, evidently, and many are really bothered by it. The Jewish leadership, first of all, in the synagogue of the freedmen where this starts, and then with the Sanhedrin, they they want him gone. That's a good expression, really, for the anger on the part of the Jewish leadership concerning Stephen. And that was our study last Sunday, wasn't it? This should sound familiar now. We looked at Stephen. And first of all, his defamation, the fact that they did a smear campaign against him. And Stephen defends himself. His defense is really a good offense. And notice chapter 7, the whole thing almost is given over to Stephen's defense. And what is his defense as he stands before the Sanhedrin? Basically, it's you're just like your fathers. He rehearsed their history for them. And in essence, as we see his conclusion, he says, you're a stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. You're just like your fathers. 
Did they like hearing that? Oh, this was their response. That That's their response. They are filled with anger. They drag him out and they stone him to death. Really, this is what the picture of it. Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of his father, the glory of God. And so with this persecution and his death, the church is scattered. And that's chapter 8, verse 1. That's where we're at today. That's the start of our passage. Notice your Bibles. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so that's our passage. The, the, the gospel is going to spread out of Jerusalem to other regions. It's going to go to Judea and Samaria. You see, the problem with the church for the first couple of years is that it was growing, but it was not going. It was growing in great ways, but it was not going. So it was not fulfilling what Christ had called it to do, to bring the gospel to the world. Here's our outline. We're going to build my message around the key characters. There are five of them. So hopefully this gives you some things to, to hang our thoughts on. First of all, we're going to talk about Saul. Then we're going to talk about Philip, who brings the gospel to Samaria. Then Simon, a magician. He's a celebrity convert. We're going to talk about that a bit. And then Peter and John are sent to, in a sense, approve of and lay their hands on those who had been saved up in Samaria. And then we're going to go back to Simon. So I guess we have five acts today. That's maybe a good way to think of a sermon. How many acts are there? Well, there's five. And you think, oh, five. I should have brought coffee. <laughs> yeah. So let's start talking about Saul. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. It's almost as if Stephen in his death is the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles stay back in Jerusalem. Why? Uh, maybe it could be their, their belief is, look, we'll go down with the ship. We're staying here. We're not leaving. Or it's possible that the persecution was primarily pointed against the Hellenistic Jews, the Hellenistic believers. And so the apostles stayed. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. And now here's Saul again. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He put them in prison. And so we read here of a persecution, actually a great persecution that comes against the church in Jerusalem, causing it to scatter throughout Judea and Samaria. And the central character behind this persecution is who? It's Saul. And we know he will later be wonderfully converted. Actually, we're in chapter 9. In what chapter do we read of the conversion of Saul? Chapter 9. We're in chapter 8, so the very next chapter. He's wonderfully converted and he becomes perhaps the greatest missionary the church has ever had. Missionary, evangelist, church planter, theologian. 
right? Because much of our New Testament is composed of his writings. But the key idea I'd like us to latch on here is, is that of Saul ravaging the church. That's what he's doing. He's ravaging the church, this persecution against the church. Ravaging is an interesting term. It was used of wild animals ravaging a body. It was used of a wild boar ravaging a vineyard. And so we need to have this strong image. Saul is ravaging the church. He's going door to door, arresting both men and women, women, and throwing them into prison. Ravaging the church. Thinking he's doing God a favor. He's serving God. Doing what's right. Let's move ahead in Acts to Acts 26. So we're back in Acts 8, and so where are we going? Maybe 15, 20 years? I hadn't thought in terms of how many years, but after Saul's conversion, after his missionary journeys, he's arrested, and he's standing trial, and he goes before King Agrippa. And we read, this is, this is Saul's defense. So then, Paul says, I, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And notice this, being ferociously enraged, furiously enraged, being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So that's Saul. That's our character here as we start out, ravaging the church, being ferocious, furious. I want to say ferociously, don't I? I guess I got the tiger on my mind. But furiously enraged. Application. Encouragement. God can save the worst of sinners. That was Saul. That was Saul, the worst of sinners. In fact, do you know he says that about himself? I am the worst of sinners, and God's grace laid hold of me. So be encouraged. God can save the worst of sinners. You, you may know somebody think, boy, they're the worst. I remember something that's effect in high school. You can think of high school classmates. They, you know, they're almost the least likely ones to come to Christ, right? And who gets saved oftentimes, right? They're the least likely one. Paul writes to Timothy. This is 1 Timothy 1. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. These terms describing him. Enraged. Ravaging the church. Violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. And he was. He was a bad person. But so were you, right? He never persecuted the church, but you weren't good enough to get into heaven. You needed the grace of God. 
And then he says, yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so Paul here in essence saying that if God can save me, demonstrate his patience and his grace and his mercy with me, he can save anybody. That's the idea. He can save anybody. His grace can save anybody. And maybe you have those. I mentioned a, a name this morning, Lee, who used to be hanging. He lived in the woods. Lee lived on, in, you know, around here in the streets. And, and Lee would have the sense, you know, I've done so much bad stuff. Almost a sense God's grace can't reach me. I should have shown him this passage, right? As, as Paul says, boy, God, God's grace, there's no end it cannot reach to. And did you notice where Paul goes with this? Thinking of his salvation and God's grace, verse 17, he worships. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's where his understanding of the grace of God brought him. It put a song on his lips or to his pen. And that's the way it should be with us. I can tell a lot about us and our understanding of the grace of God and our salvation by how we worship. And boy, if we understand the grace of God that's been extended to us, we worship with some passion, I believe. Yep. Yeah. Understanding the grace of God puts a song in our hearts and on our lips. Amen? Amen? Yeah. Philip, let's move on. So Saul's our first character. A lot to be learned. And we're going to see him a lot, aren't we, now as we move ahead. And then we talk about Philip. And, and this is probably the key idea in, in the whole passage, Philip. Verse 4, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Actually, he goes north, but it's a lower elevation. So he goes down to the city of Samaria, and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was being said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. And so this persecution comes. Some folks, many folks, believers are scattered outside of Jerusalem. And Philip takes the gospel to the city of Samaria. The key term probably in all of this, or the one I want us to focus on, is in verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Diasporo. It's a farming term. The persecuted church was scattered and went about preaching the gospel. They were like seed that was being sown into the world. That's the idea. They were scattered and they went out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. They were seed sown by the hand of God. Because I believe it was God who allowed, even brought the persecution against the church because they were growing and not going. And it was time to get out there. It's toiling, it's turning the soil. And singled out is Philip. 
He's the one that, that Luke chooses, chooses to focus on. And we already know that he was one of the seven back in Acts 6 that served the widows. And we're told he goes to the city of Samaria. Not called that anymore. I believe it's the city of Sebasti, a name change. So there we are. Notice, here's Jerusalem, right? That's where the church was. They were growing but not going. And Philip is cast out and he, and he travels hundreds of miles up to Sebasti. I'm lying to you. He's not going hundreds of miles. How far is he going? Forty miles. That's it. I mean, that's it. You could hop in your car and go 40 miles, some of you, in five minutes. He's not going very far, but but he's being scattered, and, and he's actually going to a totally different culture, isn't he? From Jews to Samaritans. And that's huge. That's huge. You know, what, what did they say when he walked on the moon? Who was it? He said, one small step. What did he say? One giant leap. No, no, one small step for me and one giant yeah, leap for mankind. This is a giant leap in the gospel when it goes from Jerusalem. Somebody Google it in and you can raise your hand and we'll come up with the exact phrase. You all are looking at me like, what? Who said that? <laughs> yeah, we remember. Oh, Karis, you got your hand. You know what they said? Okay, so this is one giant step for the church. Look what John Stott has to say. He said, it's hard for us to conceive the the boldness of the step Philip took in preaching the gospel to Samaritans. For the hostility between Jews and Samaritans had lasted a thousand years. It, It began with the breakup of the monarchy in the 10th century B.C. when the ten tribes defected, making Samaria their capital and only two tribes remained loyal to Jerusalem. Oh, it became steadily worse when Samaria was captured by Assyria in 722 and thousands of its inhabitants were deported and the country was repopulated by foreigners. So what happened? These foreigners are brought in by the Assyrians. They intermarry. And now there's this intermarrying taking place. In the 6th century B.C., when the Jews returned to their land, they refused the help of the Samaritans in rebuilding the temple. Not till the 4th century B.C., however, did the Samaritan schism harden. And with the building of the rival temple on Mount Gerizim and the repudiation of all the Old Testament scripture except the Pentateuch, the Samaritans were despised by the Jews. Despised by the Jews as hybrids in both race and religion as both heretics and schismatics. So this is a giant step for the church. As it moves out of Jerusalem, as God intended, and it takes the gospel to the Samaritans, the enemies of the Jews. The gospel, and I said this is one of our main points, the relevancy is for all the world. What's the boys and girls song? Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the children of the world. He loves all peoples. Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem. See, that was the problem. They were growing and not going, and now they're scattered because the gospel is for the whole world. Amen. 
And some of our greatest joy as a church comes by participating in the gospel, going to the utmost places in the world. Leadership Magazine had an illustration on evangelism. Let me just read the gist of it. Officer Tori Matthews of the Southern California Humane Society got an emergency call. A boy's pet iguana had been scared up a tree by a neighbor's dog. It then fell from the tree into the swimming pool where it sank like a brick. Officer Matthews came with her net, dived into the pool, emerged seconds later with a pet slim body. As the Arizona Republic, the newspaper reported, she thought, well, you do CPR on person and on a dog. Why not an iguana? So she put her lips to the iguanas. She said, now that I look back on it, it was a pretty ugly animal to be kissing. But the last thing I wanted to do was tell this little boy that his iguana had died. The lizard responded to her efforts and is expected to make a full recovery. (laughs) Hero, iguana. Then they applied it to evangelism. Tori didn't see a waterlogged reptile. She saw a little boy's beloved pet. We may never see the beauty in some people, but when we realize how much they mean to God, we'll do what we can to keep them from drowning. The Jews saw little beauty in the Samaritans. In fact, they saw no beauty. They hated the Samaritans. But the early church was coming to understand, were they not, that God loved The whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was not to be contained and held in Jerusalem or just to the Jews. It was for the whole world. Even their enemies are those they would have considered their enemies at one time. And the gospel goes and gloriously transforms lives and brings Jesus glory. Amen? That's what's happening here. That's the, the, the center of our passage, the gospel for the world. A giant step for the church. All right. Act 3. You ready for Act 3? The curtains go. We're going to open them up. So first of all, it's Saul. And who did we just look at? Philip, who goes to Samaria, preaches the gospel. Great response. Oh, step forward for the church. And then Simon, this celebrity, is saved. So we're going to read about Simon. Now notice verse 9. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city, and he was astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be somebody great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Now notice, how does verse 12 begin? But, when they believe Philip preaching the good news, there's going to be this huge transition for Simon. Right? Because the people put him on a pedestal. But now with the gospel, they're going to put who on a pedestal? Jesus Christ. He's really going to struggle with this. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. 
And so the gospel is taken by Philip up to Samaria, and Simon is singled out as an individual in that city. Simon practiced magic. He did tricks, probably involved in sorcery and things that are demonic. Simon was a celebrity convert. We see that he what? He astonished the people with his magic arts. I mean, they were amazed. Twice it says he astonished them. And then he claimed to be great. Wasn't it Muhammad Ali who said, I am the greatest as a boxer? And I think the next day he got beat. But, but, but Simon claims to be great. And it says they considered him to be somebody great. So he's this celebrity convert. We need to have a sense of that. I mean, he was a top dog in, in, in this city. Yeah. Uh, this is... A picture of Kanye West. But I'm looking at some of you older folks, and if you're over 40 or 50, you probably wonder, who is Kanye West? Yeah. Well, he's a celebrity. Uh, this is Wikipedia. West is one of the world's best-selling music artists with over 100 million records sold worldwide. He's won a total of 21 Grammy Awards, making him one of the most awarded artists of all time. He is a great celebrity in our culture and in the world. And you know that last April, I believe it was last April, he professed faith in Jesus Christ. He said, I've become a Christian. He's been very vocal about it. Have you heard, how many, most of you don't, if you're over 50, you have no idea who Kanye West is. Maybe never heard of him, but if you're younger, there's this whole discussion about him. Did, did, is his faith genuine? Did, is he truly saved? You've been reading that? It's actually, I'm going to put his hand up. Come on, where, where do y'all live? You know, what part of the world? Right, they're talking about him. Is he really saved? That's the discussion in the commentaries concerning Simon from Samaria. The celebrity convert, and you read the commentaries. I've read the commentaries in preparation for this message, and that's the discussion. Well, do you think he was really saved? And you know where most of them fall out? It's kind of like, I don't think so, because of some of the stuff we're going to read in just a little bit. And I go contrary to that. I think he truly is saved. What do we find about Simon? He believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And so he believes, he's baptized, and he continues on. But let me say this. I don't think it's necessary to determine if Simon's conversion is true or false. And we're never going to settle the argument. I don't think it's necessary for us to understand When it comes to understanding Luke's purpose and talking about Simon. Because we're going to see in just a little bit the issue with Simon is not was he a believer or not. The issue with Simon is going to become the purity of the church. Because he is going to try to buy something. The ability to bestow the spirit. And it's going to be all about the purity of the church. That's that's why Simon, I think, is brought into this. Not so we have this interesting discussion. You think he was saved? You not think he was saved? It's to miss the point, I believe. It's a rabbit trail. I like going on rabbit trails sometimes, but I think that one's a rabbit trail. All right. Let's review. We're at ready for Act 4. We went through Act 3. It was a rather short one. 
I should call on somebody and say, all right, you all are thinking, don't call on me. Who's our first character? Saul. Who's our second character? Philip. Who's our third character? Simon, the celebrity convert. Now the scene switches. We're going to need the apostles to come up from Jerusalem. Notice verse 14. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, They sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Spirit. We've got to ask ourselves, what is going on here? Those in Samaria believe and are baptized, but it's only later when the apostles arrive from Jerusalem that they receive the Holy Spirit. What is going on here? We want to ask, is this normal or is this abnormal? Is this prescriptive? Is Luke telling us this? So we'll practice this and expect this? Or is Luke simply being descriptive? He's just telling us what happened in Samaria. Our Pentecostal friends and some of our charismatic friends say that, that what we find here should be the experience of us all. That sometime after our conversion, as we see here, we should seek a further reception of the Holy Spirit. Uh, They speak in terms of what? A second baptism. Yeah, you may have got the Spirit uh, when you got saved, but you need a second baptism with the Holy Spirit. And can I lovingly say this to my charismatic and Pentecostal friends? I think you got it wrong. Not that we don't need, after receiving the Spirit, further activity of the Holy Spirit for the transformation of our lives, but not some sort of second baptism. I think Luke includes this about the coming of the apostles up from Jerusalem to Samaria because this is all abnormal. It's not normal. And I've already, we've already established that, 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 that the gospel is going from Jew to Samaritan. This is not your usual step forward. This is one huge step forward. And so this is very critical. Right? What is normal? I think what is normal is what we found is to the reception of the Spirit back in Acts 2 when Peter preaches at Pentecost. And it says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, this is what you need to do. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what do I need to do? You need to repent, turn from your sins, put your faith in Jesus Christ, evidenced by your being baptized and you'll receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. That's how one gets the Holy Spirit to take up residence in their life. So what's going on? This is very interesting. This is a theological battlefield here. I think John MacArthur has it right. Why did the Samaritans and later Gentiles have to wait for the apostles before receiving the Spirit? Because for centuries, the Samaritans and Jews had been bitter rivals. If the Samaritans had received the Spirit independent of the Jerusalem church, that rift would have been perpetuated. There could well have been two separate churches, a Jewish church and a Samaritan church. 
But God designed one church in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. And so what we find going on, I believe, is abnormal, but through it, God is preserving the unity of the church. Because it's so important to have the church united, as as MacArthur talks about. Had that not happened, there could have been a high likelihood where you would have a Samaritan church. We can see it. Doesn't take much to get us to split, does it? Huh? Yeah. You'd have a Samaritan church and you'd have a, Gen- uh, a Jewish church and it wouldn't be long before you'd have a Gentile church. And then, I'm a Dutchman, I want a Dutch church. Right? Yep. And so this is abnormal. And so I think that's the best way to understand it. Go home and do some, some reading, further reading. It's, 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 it's all very fascinating. Don't you love to study God's Word? Amen. All right, we've got four acts and we're ready for Act 5. Anybody ready for Act 5? Go to lunch. Oh, don't, don't put your hand up, please. <laughs> I tricked you, I guess. Acts 5. So Act 1 is, help me out here, Saul, yep, who's ravaging the church. Act 2 is Philip, who's a part of the scattering and takes it to the city of Samaria. Act 3 is Simon, the celebrity convert. Act 4 the apostles, John and Peter, taking, uh, going up there and keeping the church united, bestowing the Spirit. And now we're to Act 5 and we're back to Simon. So we're going to see why Simon is a part of all of this, I believe. Notice verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. The inflection here has to be very strong. Peter's upset. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And it's because of this kind of language that some people say, see, Simon never really was saved. I think he was saved. He just was struggling living out his salvation. Uh, not hard to do for all of us, even if we've been saved for a number of years. And here he just been saved, I believe, for just a short period of time. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. I think some translate that uh, the bitter jealousy, because that, I think, is what's going on. Simon is jealous. He lost his position in the city. The gospel came, changed everything. He was top dog. He was the great guy. Everybody was astonished by Simon. Now he's the little guy sitting at Starbucks all by himself. Nobody cares about Simon so much anymore. Right? Not like they used to. And so the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, you pray for the Lord, for me yourselves. So that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. How many of us are paying attention to the debates, the presidential debates? You know, I'm watching for your response and I'll call you out if nobody puts their hand up. I find it fascinating. I watched it Wednesday. It was kind of entertaining. It was disappointing, uh, but, but entertaining, right? Anybody watch it? Jack, Jack, thank you. You raise your hand for a lot of these things. Every, every, look at Jack. See how he did? It was just fascinating in a sense. And, and this is the new guy to the stage. 
Michael Bloomberg used to be mayor of New York City, and they tore him up. They absolutely ate him alive. They, they said, you're, you're a racist. You're stopping frisk policy in New York City. You're a sex offender or whatever they wanted to say about that. And, and I think they threw this in. If not there, they talk about him buying what? The election. You got your money and you want to buy the election. That's what's happening here with Simon. Simon offers Peter and John money. He wants to buy the ability to bestow the Spirit. That's what he's doing. Simony is a term that comes from what he's doing here. It speaks of the buying and selling of church offices or church privileges. And that word comes from this event, simony. And Peter is, he's beside him. Peter is losing his spirituality. He speaks so strongly. Philip's translation, notice this, if you'll allow me to read this. This is a Philip's translation that we're aware of. But Peter said to him, to hell with you and your money. How dare you think you could buy the gift of God? You can have no share or place in this ministry, for your heart is not honest before God. And so Peter is really bothered by the attempts of Simon to buy the ability to bestow the Holy Spirit. He's beside himself. Yeah. And he says, you better repent. And ask God to forgive you. And Simon says, well, you pray for me. Maybe Simon at this point is so scared. He's going, whoa, you're on better standing with God than I am. You pray for me. But that's what's going on. So we do this. We try to wrap our heads around our passage. Because we're wanting to say, what's going on here? How do we apply this? What do we do with this? And the big idea is this. That the gospel is for all people. That's the big idea. That's what I emphasize. Talking about the, the, uh, iguana and, 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 and the evangelism for the world. That idea. That, that is the big idea. The gospel is for all people. And God used the persecution of the church in Jerusalem, which was growing and not going, to scatter it, to get the word out. And so the gospel is for all people, even those you may consider your enemies. Maybe most of all, we should say, for those who are enemies, bringing them the gospel. And then the second idea, and it's a secondary idea, is this, that God loves his church. We see that. How do we see that? Because we see him preserving the unity of the church as the apostles come. God's concerned about a united church. And then we see through Simon, God is concerned about the purity of the church. God is concerned with his church. Jesus Christ is concerned with his church. It's unity. It's purity. And that's what Simon teaches us. Uh, This is a wonderful... Go say, oh, isn't that a wonderful picture? That's Diane and I when we got married. July 2nd, good thing I wrote it up there, 1983. <laughs> my wonderful bride. But my point is, I love and seek to protect Diana. She's my bride. And our New Testaments use that same language 
of Christ in the church. And it speaks of these ideas, his love, his desire for the purity of the church, the unity of the church. Christ loves this church, the church universal, the church over the centuries. This church, you as a part of this church. And we see in Ephesians, and we'll end with this, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be, what? Holy and blameless. And I think that's what's going on with Simon. Simon had to be addressed. His issue of thinking he could buy this influence. No. And then, so husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ also does the church, because we're members of his body. This is strong language. We're members of his body. And then Paul pulls in Old Testament reference. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and it shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to the Christ and the church. I'm referencing this to speak of Christ and the church, and they're being one. They're being one. Christ loves his church. What an encouragement, isn't it? Isn't it? What an encouragement for us. All right, we could rehearse. I think I've got questions in your notes, don't I? Because, Pastor Joe, why do you have those? Because I'm all about us studying God's word. All right, so you're going to walk out of here and you're going to say, you know what? I got Acts 8 down, 1 through 24. Five acts, five people. We think of Saul, and then we think of Philip, and then we think of Simon, and then we think of Peter and John, and then we think of Simon again. And we understand the flow, and we understand where it's all going. That's my desire. Because I'm convinced that the Word of God, as we apply it to our lives, transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ for our good and His glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we give you praise. We are blessed. Because we have a Bible, we have the Word of God. We don't have to live in darkness. We don't have to question whether or not the gospel is for the world. If it's just we're supposed to keep it to ourselves. It's for the world. So, Father, may we be about that. We don't have to question your love of your church. You, you desire the church to be holy. Father, we're one with your Son. So, Father, we thank you and help us now. We're going to leave and we're going to go eat and we're going to talk. and Some may go do some recreation, take a nap, whatever. But help us as we leave here to continue to work with your word and be transformed by it. Because it's not those who hear, but those who do that are transformed. And, Father, we pray for your further grace and favor in that happening in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.